0: Father, once again, we just give a word of thanks. We acknowledge that all that we have and are is because of you. We pray that you would take this token that we bring this morning and offer to you, and that you would use it for the building of your kingdom and to make the name of Christ known throughout the earth. In his name we pray. Amen. Please remain standing. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would now bless your word to each of our hearts and lives that you might speak your truth deep into our very selves, changing us from glory unto glory by your everlasting grace through our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want to suggest that segmented or parceled out truth can oftentimes become unproductive truth. Having... Some of the facts, but not access to the totality of facts, can leave one at a loss. We saw this so painfully a little over a decade ago. If, if you've read the 9-11 Commission Report, you'll know, of course, that we knew much, many of us. The FBI knew much, the CIA knew much, and what was observed was that no one knew everything and that much of the great tragedy leading up to and befalling us on that terrible, horrific day was owing to the failure to piece things together and to see the whole, the totality of our intelligence, of our awareness of what was going on around the globe and in our midst. And so the first of its many recommendations were to put a figurehead, a director of intelligence overseeing the FBI and the CIA and serving as a conduit or a point of uh, reference, someone who would know all the facts that we have available to us. If we see just part of the picture, but we don't piece it together with the rest of the picture, we can get a very difficult, a very misleading notion of what's going on. And I want to suggest that often happens with our reading of the Bible. We are blessed to have Bibles in front of us, translated, uh, available to us in our common tongue, easy to access, divided into books and chapters and verses, and oftentimes we look at them in segmented ways. When in fact, God's truth is one, is whole, is united, and must be considered as such. And this morning, I want to just propose one experiment for you. I want to consider looking at two Psalms together Psalm 111, which we read responsively as our call to worship this morning, which you can find in your bulletin, and Psalm 112, which I just read to you. They come back to back, and I want to suggest reading them together illumines something that you would not catch if you read one or the other by itself. And further, I want to suggest reading them together makes a whole lot of sense, because as you can glean from just a very quick glance, there are a number of commonalities. And as you can look in greater detail, you see even more similarities. Each of these two psalms begins with this call, Praise the Lord. And Psalm 111 concludes with remarks on the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, a theme that's picked up again at the beginning of Psalm 112, where we read that the the man who fears the Lord is blessed, right? Or is enriched, he is filled by God. But there's more than just those very obvious statements or common verbiage in each of the Psalms. Each of the Psalms is 22 lines long. Each of the Psalms begins, line by line, with the next corresponding word of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, as we might order a a poem or a song, A, B, C. They're clearly designed to be sung or prayed, to be memorized, and they're structured and begun in exactly the same way. They are a pair. Siamese twins of psalms, if ever there were some. And it it behooves us to ask, what do we see by reading them together? I want to point out two things that I hope jump off the page as you look at these two psalms together or side by side. First, we see a promise from God. And secondly, we see how that promise comes to pass or becomes reality. What's the promise that we see here? We see the promise that you are going to be made like unto God. God is going to make you like Him. We see this in that Psalm 111 speaks about God. It confesses or praises God. And Psalm 112 then says frequently the exact same things that we've just praised God for of the the person who fears God. In other words, you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. For instance, in verse 3 of Psalm 111, we profess that God's righteousness endures forever. And in verse 3 of 112, we speak of the man of God, that his righteousness endures forever In verse 4 of 111, we read, the Lord is gracious and merciful, and in verse 4 of 112, we hear of the man of God, that he is gracious, merciful, and righteous. In verse 4 of 111, we read, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. And in verse 6 of 112, we read, of the man of God, he will be remembered forever. Verse 7 of 111, we read, the works of his hands are faithful and just. And in verse 5 of 112, we read, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. Notice, time and again, something that we confess to be true of God, something that we praise God for is something for which the man of God, the woman of God is commended. You become like what you worship. Now, of course, the truth of the matter is this isn't unique to our relationship to God. You become like what you you love. You become like what you spend time with. You become like what you idolize. Dr. Paul Zions of the University of Michigan over 20 years ago ran a lengthy study looking at couples who had stayed together for years and, in fact, decades. And he surveyed a number of people, putting before them pictures of various men and women, all spouses. He showed them pictures of these men and women, these husbands and wives, when they were first married, and then pictures again after they'd been together, married for over 20 years, and it was remarkable. In the initial pictures, people couldn't piece together who should be with who. They couldn't identify husbands and wives. But amazingly, after they had lived together for over 20 years, the ability to piece together who goes with who shoots up dramatically. Some of you were thinking, oh dear, right? <laughs> oh dear. You start to look like who you live with, Right? And this is not just happenstance, this is actually scientifically driven by the fact that you start to take on character qualities. If you live with a scowler, you will start to scowl more. If you live with someone who smiles often, you too will probably partake of a few more smiles and over years and decades, that changes your facial structure. You start to look like the person across the table from you. Now that's true in a comical way. In our marriages, in our friendships, in our fixations, in our hobbies, we start to become like what we love and cherish. The Bible tells us it's true of our relationship to God. New Testament scholar Greg Beale said you become what you worship either for ruin or restoration, and that's exactly what the Bible tells us. The prophet Isaiah addresses Israel just before the time of the exile. And he does a remarkable thing. He first mocks the the idols of the nations around them, saying that they are deaf, they are dumb. They can't hear the prayers of people made unto them. They can't think to respond wisely to them. They can't do or act in any way on your behalf. And then in Isaiah 6, 12-15, the prophet addresses Israel who've become idolaters, who've fled after those gods of the nations. And he says, you have become deaf. You have become dumb. You have become incapable of action. You have become exactly like the gods you've been running after. But the promise of the gospel is not a promise of conformity to an idol. It's not a promise of being shaped in a way that leads to your ruin. It's a promise of Jesus, whom you're united to, who restores you. One of the remarkable glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that as we're united to him, as we're drawn close to him, as we're made one with him, we're not just forgiven, but we're also restored. And so we start to take on some of the character qualities of him. You don't become a fourth member of the Trinity, but you do become godly. You don't become the creator of the universe, but you do take on the characteristics of your heavenly Father. God ensures that his children bear his image in Jesus Christ. You become like what you worship. So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 9, says that the peacemakers are blessed, for they shall be called sons of God. They bear the image of their father. What? The image of one who makes peace. That's one of God's most remarkable qualities, to be a bridge builder, to be one who mediates, who reconciles, who brings rest, who brings shalom and calm in the midst of chaos and disorder. And his children bear that image. They take on that quality by his grace. Well, let me point out just one example here of what the psalmist says we take on. We start to uh, behave or we start to be like our Heavenly Father. Um, As we look at Psalm 111, one word jumps out repeatedly over and over and over again. The word forever. And it's ascribed of God, of God's characteristics, of God's actions. His righteousness endures forever, right? Right? He remembers his covenant forever, right? Uh, His statutes are established forever and ever. He's commanded his covenant forever. His praise endures forever. That doesn't simply speak to longevity, but to steadfastness amidst different circumstances. God is not a respecter of persons, We read elsewhere in scripture, God is not a respecter of circumstances. God is not changed. God is not affected by the highs and the lows, by the wins and the losses of this world. God is steadfast. God is faithful. God is forever. And notice how this is spoken of. The man of God, the woman of God, the person who in worship is becoming like unto God. We become steadfast. Psalm 112 verse 3 tells us that this occurs in times of fullness. Wealth and riches are in this person's house, and his righteousness endures forever. Now let's notice that's not normal. When most sinful human beings get rich, they get unrighteous because you can start to afford being unrighteous. They get haughty. They get arrogant. This is why Jesus has to say that entering the kingdom of God as a rich person is a terribly dicey circumstance, right? Because we all know that riches easily breed that self-satisfaction and smugness, that notion that you can do it on your own. But not so for this one. In times of plenty, in situations of blessing... The man or the woman of God, they remain righteous. They remain righteous. But notice in times of severe need, when there's no food in the cupboard, when there's no money in the checking account, notice what we read here in verse 4, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. In verse 6, the righteous will never be moved. In verse 7, he's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. And in verse 8, his heart is steady, he will not be afraid. Just as the good times don't lead him away from righteousness, the bad times don't lead him to despondency or to despair. And we know the way that goes too, don't we? We know how easy it is for difficulties, for sufferings, for pain, for hardship, for disappointment, to somehow suggest to our hearts that there can be no better, that there is no hope. That things fall apart, that the center doesn't hold, that things will forever be as bad as they feel now, as challenging as they feel now. We will always be as lonely and isolated as we are now. But not so. Not so for the man of God, not so for the woman of God. Worshipping the God who's steadfast and enduring forever, they become steadfast by God's grace. Their heart is steady, it is firm doesn't mean their situation necessarily becomes easier or calmer, but they are less anxious. They are faithful. The God who endures forever molds his people to be those who can be sustained in every circumstance, whose hearts are steady and who won't be afraid. Well, that sounds really good to me, because I do experience anxiety on the one hand, and I do at times fall into self satisfaction or haughtiness. On the other hand, I realize that as life ebbs and flows, my heart is not always perfectly enduring steadfastly and righteously. And so the promise that God would make me to be a bit more like Himself, enduring amidst the highs and the lows, in seasons of want and in seasons of blessing, that's appealing. So we might ask, if that's the promise, how does that happen? How is it that people like you and I begin to take on this quality? And the first thing the psalm points us to is this remarkable idea, the fear of the Lord. Look at the end of Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. And look at the first verse of Psalm 112, where it's picked up again. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Understanding how we start to become like the God we worship is going to be centered around understanding something of what it means to fear the Lord. But the catch is that's a really difficult idea. Fearing God can take different forms in different circumstances. You'll know, of course, that there's a fear of God that is standoffish and skittish. And it's that fear of those who are swallowed and overwhelmed by their sin and guilt. You'll know, of course, if you're a Christian, one of the remarkable promises that we read later in the Bible for instance, in 1 John, where we encounter the, the remarkable promise that perfect love casts out fear, right? That's a remarkable word. Or 2 Timothy 1.7 reminds us that God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. If you're in Christ, you need no longer feel, fear God in that way. You need no longer fear that God will somehow get you that his justice will find you out, that his punishment will come upon you, right? That his favor will be taken away. But that's not the only way the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord. The Bible talks about the fear of the Lord in positive ways, in ways that draw us closer to God, not push us further away from him. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that the Lord your God you shall fear. Job 28:28 28, 28 tells us turning from evil is rooted in the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 19 tells us in verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean and it endures forever. Notice it endures well after you've been saved and redeemed. It's not something that that led you skittish and scared to Jesus to get beyond fearing God, but rather it's, it's clean and it's holy, it's pure, and it lasts long after you've been saved. What is it? What is it? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Notice that. The fear of God is a way to bring holiness to completion. It's not something you leave behind when you get holy. It's not something that's an initial phase that you've got to grow out of, but rather it's the instrument, it's the means by which your holiness progresses and matures, by which God grows you up in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean, to fear God? I remember the first high school basketball game I played. It was the summer before my freshman year of high school. And our team went up to a jamboree at the University of Florida where they brought together teams from all over the southeast. And I was the youngin on the team, the rising freshman. And my job was not to score. It was not to put points on the board. It was to be aware of and to follow the best player on the other team. That was my mission in life on this team. That was the reason I was there. And in our first game, I got a horrific assignment. We matched up against Cape Coral Coral Mariner High School who had the current and soon to repeat Florida Mr. Basketball, a guy named Teddy DuPay who wound up playing for the Gators. And Teddy DuPay had averaged 44 points the season before in every game. And I remember my coach gave me but one mandate. He said, wherever Teddy DuPay is, you are there. He said, I don't care if we're on offense. I don't care if we're on defense. You follow that man around the court. And So I was a rising freshman. I'm going to obey my coach, even if it sounds like hyperbole and overstatement. And so the entire game, when I was on the floor, I followed this, this player around the court. I tell you. He scored more points on me than I think anyone ever did. (laughs) 36 of them, which was eight below his average. So I walked away feeling like a winner, frankly, even though I'd just gotten completely trounced. But the entire game, my job was to always be aware of one thing, not where the ball is, not what's happening, but where he is, and to stay right in between him and the basket, right? Think back to when you were learning to drive. And a parent took you out, or a driving ed instructor, and as you pulled up to a busy intersection, as you were about to make a turn, they taught you how you check your sight lines. And before you enter an intersection, before you make a turn, you're always to be aware of certain things, right? You check your crosses, you're to to look at the rear view, you're to look in your blind side, Right? And you internalize this. This becomes a rhythm so that eventually you don't have to tell yourself to check this, to check that, to check there. You just do it. It becomes second nature. But you're aware of certain things in your environment so that you can proceed and you can drive safely, right? The fear of the Lord is like my task in that game, and it's like your job checking your sight lines, The fear of the Lord means in whatever circumstance we find ourselves, we are aware that our first task is to be aware of where God is and what God is doing, what God's word or promise, what God's call or commandment in that situation is. It's always to first and foremost check that. It's to be aware that God is involved and active, that Whatever the circumstance may be, whether it's in church or in those situations of life that seem most removed from church, that God is active, God is involved, and we are to be aware, we are to be cognizant of what he might be doing there. Now, how does that happen? How do we become people who possess and are marked by that fear of that, the Lord, that awareness of God's presence? right such that like the driver we don't have to keep thinking to check the sight lines but we just intuitively do it the psalm tells us a couple things first of all it tells us you're not on your own god makes sure this happens it's remarkable god ensures that you will actually grow in this way so for instance in psalm 111 verse 4 it tells us he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered God doesn't leave you on your own and say, please remember me. He doesn't send you out on your way and say, please don't forget me. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. He makes our memory happen. He ensures we don't forget him. And it goes a step further in verse 6. He has shown his people the power of his works. He doesn't simply cause us to remember that he's around, but he impresses on us the meaning, the power, the significance of the reality of his presence. That word, the power of his works, speaks to their centrality, to the fundamental role they play in shaping our lives, our circumstances, our situations. And that's not so obvious, is it? Some of you will have watched the news or read a newspaper today. And I guarantee you, unless you've subscribed to something I'm not aware of, you will have read about all sorts of interesting secondary matters. You will have read about games and debates, about missile launches and about local tragedies. And you will have not read one single word about what God did yesterday right you can be all over the map about whether you want to watch Fox or MSNBC whether you want to read this or that newspaper but they will be silent about the single most active involved significant figure in the history of the world right that's the way telling the news goes in our culture That leads us away from the notion of the fear of the Lord, from prioritizing God as the most active, interesting, and involved character in any situation. And you know what? It's not just the newspaper or the news. If we're honest, it's us, isn't it? I don't don't need a bad news director to, to write God out of the broadcast, if I'm honest. I like to think about myself. We like to think about what we achieve. We tend to be overwhelmed by our failures or insufficiencies. We grow so myopic, don't we, in terms of recounting what's occurred that day. And so I think back to last night's dinnertime conversation with my family and what I recounted about the events of my day. And more often than not, I'm pretty sure I or other family members, other human beings, were the subject of every sentence, right? Right? Very rarely do I step in and say, well, God was sanctifying me today, right? Very rarely do I speak about, well, God was providing this blessing, right? We speak so often and so small in how we describe our own stories. But this text tells us God ensures that he's remembered and God ensures that we know the power of that. And that sounds really good to me. How does God ensure this? There are two things that I think are worth noting. Very briefly. Look at the beginning of Psalm 111. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Here we have the the notion of meditation upon God's holy word. Where we read of his works. Where our minds and imaginations, our hearts and affections are once again reset, recalibrated to the truth and the power of who God is and what God's done. And so the first way in which the fear of the Lord is instilled in us, the first way in which God ensures that we remember him and that we know the power of what he's done is by attending to the study of his holy word. Notice the second thing, though, and we see this at the beginning and the end of 111 and the beginning of Psalm 112 as well the call to praise God. And what we find is that it's not as though we are formed and strengthened by our Bible study all week and then we show up here sort of to show it off or to offer it back to God, but that what we do here in worship, what we do here together as God's people, shapes us. That our praise, our prayer, our learning to speak of our stories and of our lives, first and foremost by speaking of God. That recalibrates our imaginations, our affections, our passions, our wills, the way in which we see ourselves and one another. And so it's not only in our private, personal study of the Bible throughout the week, but also in our corporate worship as we gather together to sing to and of God that the fear of the Lord is instilled in us. And that we come to be a bit more like the God whom we worship. What we see here is that God doesn't simply want to pardon you and pass you off. But like a parent, God wants not only to forgive you, but to restore you. And not only to restore you, but to glorify you. And not only to glorify you, but to be with you. And he's given you his word to commune with you. And he's given you his body that you might dwell in its midst. And as we go from here, let's each of us seek to be mindful of the fullness of his grace and of the breadth of his gospel and of all the many ways he wants to grow us up, each and every one of us, to be more like him, to be conformed into the image of his son, even Jesus Let's pray and ask that He do that for us. Father, we confess as we read your word and sing of you, we feel so very small. We feel insignificant in the face of your grandeur, and yet we're reminded that you sent your Son to become one of us, even to die on a tree on our behalf. And so we know that our glory is only in your good and your grace. And our salvation and restoration are only going to come from your hand. We rejoice and rest in your kindness and mercy, in your steadfastness and patience. And we thank you for giving us your word, and we thank you for growing us up in your church. And we pray that for each and every one of us, your grace might be new each day, your mercy might unfold a bit more, and that we might come to share the glory, and to reflect the character of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.